that was my first trip in LA and it was a pretty successful trip because I went back, you know, to Chicago after recording with 3LW, I went back to waiting tables. I mean, that was rough. And I mean, talk about rough uh, because I felt like I had made it. And now I went back to, you know, everyday life. So it was like hmm. the dream is over. Emil Gantas is a Grammy nominated record producer and songwriter. He has credits with artists like Pitbull, Jojo, Charlie Wilson, and dozens of other household names. But before he was producing songs for these big-time artists, he was just a kid buying the latest R&B CDs in his hometown of Peoria, Illinois. Listening to groups like Boys to Men and New Edition had him hooked on music and began experimenting with creating beats and making songs with his friends in high school. Flash forward a few years and Emil is hustling artists back and forth to his friend's recording studio, spending sleepless nights producing music, and meeting with some of the most influential managers in the industry. All that dedication eventually paid off when he landed a huge deal to produce an album for an aspiring artist. He has a great story with a lot of ups and downs, a lot of hustle, and some funny memories. Listen to it now on this episode of The Big Break. I was actually born and raised in Peoria, Illinois. It's about two and a half or three hours outside of Chicago. And that's kind of, you know, ever since I was a kid, I had a huge appreciation for music. I remember being five, six years old and you know, begging my dad for a Michael Jackson Thriller album or like <laughs> the Commodores or, you know, Cool and the Gang, New Edition. I was always uh, into, uh, into R&B music. Uh, R&B music always resonated with me. It's, you know, for years, that's pretty much all I listened to. I would say that's all I listened to for probably the first 10 years. I would say until I was maybe about 20 years old, I really didn't listen to anything except R&B music. And I would buy... Living in Peoria, it's a small town. You know, there's not a lot of people there. Mm-hmm. But uh, I would go to, I would work a regular job, and every Tuesday I would go to the record store and I would buy all the new R&B CDs that came out, even if I had never heard of the artist. I would just buy every single one, and I would start listening to them. I would start reading the names, see who was writing, producing, and uh, you know, reading the liner notes and the credits. I don't know really why I was doing that at, at a young age. Uh, but that's what I would do every single Tuesdays. I would go buy all the new R&B, a lot of hip-hop albums as well. Mm-hmm. And I would uh, I would just kind of break them down. I would listen to see what they all had in common and, you know, see what record labels these artists were on and, uh, you know, who was writing, who was producing. It was pretty cool. Gotcha. And that was, um, was that mostly you that kind of fostered that uh, that interest in music or were your, it, it your was parents involved me, it? It was me. You know, my mom and dad are not musical at all. I've got mm-hmm. two brothers and a sister. They're not musical either. Uh, I mean, they're, they have a huge appreciation for music. But, um, you know, my mom's father was actually a great singer. He never did anything professional professionally, but he was always an incredible singer. And on my dad's side, a lot of my aunts and uncles were, you know, excellent singers and musicians. None of them pursued it professionally because for them it was it wasn't really a way of life you know they all worked as tailors and and things of that nature to you know survive they had a lot of kids and a lot of mouths to feed so they never really pursued music but at all of our family events it was always pretty much everyone on my dad's side who would play you know get get guitars out and drums and things like that and everybody would have like these little mini concerts at all of the events that i used to go to as a kid so it was Hmm. pretty cool that is cool. Nice. So, um, so you're growing up in literally small town, middle America, um, and you get like you're super interested in R and B. When you were when you're coming through middle and high school, is that translating into uh, actually making music? In a way, I started writing songs when I want to. I want to say I started writing songs when I was a freshman in high school. I um, I was listening to trying to think everything that was out. I was listening to like a lot of Jodeci and Boyz to Men, uh, groups like that, New Edition, Belle Bib DeVoe. And um, I used to take their songs and I would just change the words and make up new words to their melodies because at that time I didn't know how to make melodies. And I, w- I wasn't even a musician. Um, but I started taking the songs that I loved and changing words and making my own songs around them. And then I, I formed a boy band even though none of us could really sing or dance properly. <laughs> like, I, I think I was like 14 or 15 years old, and me and my friends put together this band. It was called 
Creative Colors. It was one of the worst names. It was because there is, I, there, I'm Lebanese. My best friend at the time, his name was Kevin Williams. Uh, he was a black guy. I had a friend who was Latin, a friend who was Asian. It was just a mixture of all of us. I'm like, hey, we should be Creative Colors. And so we created this group. We never did anything. We just walked around. <laughs> we never recorded. We never wrote. We just walked around town saying, oh, we're in a group. And uh, nothing ever really came out of it, man. But it just, but it's funny when I think back to um to those days and the dreams that we had we i mean just i mean we we're just kids having fun at that time really none of us pursuing anything we were just so young and in peoria illinois there was no real outlet you know there was no major record label the closest thing the closest record label was in chicago illinois at that time it was a label called jive records and that's where r kelly was signed and you know two short spice one all these rappers it was kind of a hip-hop label so that was the closest thing that we had near us but i mean at that point as a kid we really had no idea how to even pursue something like that so you make it through high school but you i mean you clearly have an interest in music because you go to school for it right um i actually i went to a school called richwoods high school but i never studied music uh, after i graduated i met I met a guy whose name was Darren Jackson, and I still talk to him every once in a while. But I went over to his house, and he had he had drum machines and like keyboards, and I had never seen anything like that before. At that at that time, I was like, you know, when I'd hear a record, I thought everybody was playing live drums or everybody was playing you know keyboards or instruments all the way through. I had never seen a drum machine, and I remember he let me he let me mess around with his drum machine, and he showed me how to use it it was uh it was an elisis sr16 and he bought that drum machine because there was a group that we used to listen to it was a gospel group called commissioned and um uh, and he swore that that was a drum machine that they were using so he bought that and he started he started recreating the um the beats and the drums that they had done on their album because darren would and darren would actually try to remake somebody's song uh and pick all the sounds and uh, and all the parts and just try to recreate, uh, recreate it. Mm -hmm. And so I, I remember when I went over there, you know, I'm like, Oh wow, this is incredible. So I just started making beats. You know, I had no idea what I was doing, but I was just making beats and I would go to Darren's house all the time, uh, after work. And, uh, I would just sit and mess around with his equipment. And then I'm like, well, maybe I should be a rapper. And I'm like, nah, that's probably not a good idea. So I, I just would really sit around and make beats at his house. And then right around that time, I asked my dad if uh, if I could borrow some money, I think $500 or something like that, to buy this little Yamaha drum machine. I don't even remember the, the model number of it, but I remember it was gray. And it had drums. It had a sampler. It had uh, keyboard instruments and things like that in there. And I thought he was going to say no because I had never asked my dad for $500. And he said, yes. So he went and bought it for me. And I told him I would pay him back. And he told me I didn't have to pay him back. Uh, I mean, I was, I don't remember what I was doing at that time. I was pushing carts or working at a grocery store, some odd job. And every single day from that moment on, I would sit and work on tracks. I was never classically trained. I, I actually can't read or write music. And I'm not even an incredible player. I could play enough to get by and kind of fake it. But ever since that day, I started working on music pretty much every single day of my life. So, yeah, maybe you should have asked your dad for $500 more often. <laughs> I, sh I should have. But I mean, it was I mean, I was working jobs. And I, you know, after I bought that Yamaha or after I got that Yamaha drum machine, I, um, I started saving all my money and I started buying all kinds of other equipment. I, I bought things like four tracks to record vocals. I started buying real keyboards. I, I bought like, uh, I think the first keyboard I bought, I actually still have it. It's uh, it's Sonic ASR 10 sampler. Um, and I bought a Korg X3. I started buying all kinds of keyboards at that time from a local music center. And every single day I would just come home after work and I would sit and learn how to make music. Mm -hmm. And we, you know, we didn't have YouTube tutorials or anything at that time. We had owner's manuals and I mean, if anyone's ever read those owner's manuals, they really don't make that much sense. So they're kind of difficult. So, I mean, there's a long, a lot of long nights, a lot of tears. Like, you know, so you would break down because you're trying to figure this stuff out and you just can't figure it out. And it's, you know, it's frustrating and it's draining because you're trying to accomplish something and you don't know how to get, you don't know how to get the final result from it. But, you know, a lot of blood, sweat and tears. And I kind of learned how to get all this equipment to somewhat make sense. 
so you're just making beats and and putting tracks together and were you doing anything with them or did, were they just kind of living living life i was making beats and i was finding I, I was meeting a lot of local rappers in the area mm-hmm. in my hometown of peoria and so i would just make beats and i would you know there's everybody wanted to be a rapper in fact everybody still wants to be a rapper <laughs> in, in small towns you know there was a few people there was a there's a couple guys I worked with in high school that I went with, that I went to school with, uh, and then there was uh, with those guys, you know, I they were the first people I ever recorded, and they were my friend. They had a group called P and P. Just a couple guys I went to school with, and like, like I said, none of us really had any idea of what we were doing. But you know, they would be rapping around school, and I told them, "Hey, why don't we make a couple songs?" And of course, they were excited because here I am, you know, learning how to do this stuff and. You know, making music kind of makes you cool in a crazy way. I was never the most popular kid in school, but when you start making music, everybody kind of thinks you're cool. Mm-hmm. And um, and so we we made we made a few demos and we sold them at the local the r- local record store. It was a store called Co-op uh, Co-op Records, and we sold out the first day. We didn't make that many. I think we pressed maybe thirty or forty cassettes. Because we didn't have the money to to manufacture a bunch, so yeah. we so we pretty much sold out the first day, and we made a few hundred bucks, and we thought we were rich. It was funny. <laughs> I mean, we're like, wow, we can actually make money selling music. And so I did it again with another local rap group. There's a uh, guy named Special K, and the Southside Click. These are just all local rappers. None of these guys ever you know, really left the town. You know, they had success in their hometown, but nothing on mainstream radio or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we, you know, we started making tapes and making CDs and things like that. And, you know, we were kind of becoming a hometown success. And would you believe that I recently was contacted by some guys in Germany who collect all this underground 90s, uh, you know, like demos and stuff like that. And they offered they they were they actually asked me if i had any of the cassettes and cd's available that we made you know 20 years ago and you know in fact i did and they were paying me they were paying a lot of money for that stuff and i just could not believe how much they were paying for it because they're just collectors and to them you know these are just you know i can't even play the stuff for people i'm i'm not embarrassed by it but it's you know it doesn't really sound right but to you know there's collectors out there who just die for this stuff and you know they pay like they pay a lot of money for it <laughs> I, I, I wish i had more uh, available but um hey man I'm, I'm happy that it resonated you know that's still like people are still chasing this music 20 years later you know music that we didn't really think was going to go anywhere that we just you know pressed and sold in our hometown i think we made 500 copies or a thousand copies of one of them so there really wasn't much but it's it's pretty cool i gotta say it's you know, it kind of looking back, it's like, wow, I actually, you know, it, it makes sense. Uh, you know, this this whole industry kind of, you know, the, in an industry that really doesn't make sense to me now, you know, it kind of looking back, it's like I can see how that all made sense. Well, who was buying those uh, cassettes at the time? Just people, people, just pe- people locally. Huh. Yeah, people, people locally, friends and people in our hometown. You know, the, the word was getting around. The guys were doing some shows and uh you know, word around town was, "Hey, Emil's a, a a producer," and you know, I really wasn't even a producer. I was this kid who made beats, and I knew how I wanted it to sound, but I didn't know how to get it, how to get the end result. And I was recording in little studios in town. Nothing really, nothing really great. But I want to say, after after recording with all of these local artists for, I want to say a couple years, a new studio opened up in a town called Bloomington, Illinois. And Bloomington's another small, another small town. It's uh, there's a pretty big college there, Illinois State University. And um, I met a guy by the name of Eric Nelson who owned a new recording studio called Sinewave Studios. And when Sinewave Studios opened up, and we all went there, we were like, "Wow, this is a real studio," because it really was. There was like mm-hmm. two or three. There was two or three rooms in there. There was a lounge. There was a um, it was a big studio for, for Bloomington, Illinois. And I worked with Eric. He was actually my engineer, I, I want to say, for two or three years. I would just rent the studio from him, and he would engineer all of my sessions, and he would help out with – he was a great, incredible musician, and he would help out with guitar parts and keyboard parts that I actually couldn't do. And we just – you know, we weren't working every day because I could – I was – 
you know, I had to afford going into the studio. And I used to, believe it or not, I used to max out all of my credit cards to get studio time uh, for everyone. And, you know, none of the artists I ever worked with ever even offered a penny for studio time. Mm-hmm. I, was at, I was actually driving everybody around, picking them up, feeding them, and paying for studio time. So it's, um, I don't know why I did that, but I just wanted it so bad. I wanted to make music worse than you can imagine. And with Eric, I was... I was finding that my sound was actually evolving and getting better. And I wasn't just doing rap beats anymore. I was actually starting to make songs. I started writing a lot of R&B songs. I was never a great singer. At that time, I couldn't even sing a note. But people were able to somewhat translate it. And I started making pretty cool records. You know, just I continued working with a bunch of local artists in Peoria, Illinois for the next few years. And then in, I want to say, in the year 2000, you know, I wasn't really getting anywhere in Peoria. I was um, I was waiting tables and people used to say, you're actually a waiter, you're not a producer. So I don't know why you tell people you're a producer because you're never going to make it in music. Hmm. Like there's no way you're going to make it. You're not good enough and you're, not, you're never going to get out of this town. I mean, you would not believe how much shit I heard growing up from either girls I dated or friends and people like that because I literally wanted to work on music all the time. I wanted to find a way to succeed. And there was the majority of everybody was so negative all the time. And, you know, even though I was trying hard when I would play my music for my friends and people that I thought were close to me, they would, you know, they really wouldn't even pay attention to it. They'd just be talking over it or, you know, making me feel some kind of way to where, you know, I was never going to succeed. So I ended up, I was waiting tables at a restaurant and I ended up getting fired from that job. And my mom told me that I need to to leave the house and I need to move to Chicago and go live with my brother. And she didn't say it out of spite. She just said, you know, it's time. I think I was 23 years old or something like that. And she said, it's time that you get out of this town and you go to, go to Chicago, you find a job there, you go to school and, uh, and you, you know, you get to the next phase in your life. And so I did that. I pretty much moved to Chicago within a few days and I lived with my brother and it was a hard adjustment because I didn't know anyone in Chicago, just my brother. So, I mean, I went through a lonely time. I had no friends or no, no, really no one. My brother was working. And for the first two or three weeks, I didn't even have a job. I would just drive around looking for jobs. And I had no money. So that was kind of rough because I would get towed. <laughs> I would get tickets and stuff like that. I, I wasn't experienced. And I, I really didn't have any life experience and I didn't know how to really live in a big city at that time. You know, it was just the mm-hmm. Peoria, Illinois was a very slow pace and Chicago, Illinois was a very fast pace. So I really went from being a boy to a man, I want to say overnight, because I had, I actually had to learn how to, you know, survive in a big city. So I registered for, I actually went to Columbia College. I'm like, you know, let me get, let me study music here and let me um, study music production or music engineering or just any kind of music business, any kind of music class that I could get into. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that's exactly what I did. I went to Columbia College for, I want to say, just for a couple years. I didn't, I never actually graduated college. But at Columbia College, I met a lot of people. And, you know, I was telling people I was producing and making tracks and things like that. And And I started networking with a lot of people. There was a girl I went to school with. And we became pretty good friends. She was a, a rapper named Tomboy. And she told me that she knew R. Kelly and she knew Public Announcement and all these guys R. Kelly was working with at that time. And this is when R. Kelly was at the peak of his career. He was the biggest thing in the world. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, my God, I would love to go and, and meet him or, or meet anyone that's affiliated with him or you know some of these other new artists who are recording. And that's pretty much what I did. She took me to the studios. I I didn't have much music at that time. I had some, but it was enough to make an impression with, with rappers like do or die who were really big at the time. And with public announcement who was on, I want to say they were on RCA records. It was, it was, it wasn't great, but it was good enough for someone to hear that there was potential. And I started really networking hard. And I remember I was in a music class I don't even, I was just telling this story to somebody yesterday and there was a teacher, I think his name was Kimo Williams or something like that. I don't, I really don't remember, but there was, I want to say there was 200, 250 kids in that classroom. He actually asked everyone in the classroom if, 
there was anyone in there who thought that they had written a hit record. Hmm. And of course, everybody in the room raises their hand. I mean, every, everybody that you can imagine. And he said, put your hands down. He goes, come on. He goes, if you had to really come up here right now and say, this is a number one record, who in this class could do it? And nine of us raised our hands. And um, so he challenged us to bring the song that we thought was a hit record to the classroom the following week. So the following week, we all brought in a CD with the song that we thought was a hit, and we all gave them the CD. Uh, it was kind of like you know a blind test. Nobody stood up there and said, hey, this is my song. It was a blind test to where he would play the song, and everyone in the classroom would take notes and, and see what they thought. Hmm. And at the end of... At the end of the ninth song, he asked everybody which song they thought was the best one. And everybody, pretty much everybody in that classroom said it was my song. Hmm. And I was like, I couldn't believe it. And what's so funny about that is the song that came up, that came second place, was another song I did for another rapper in the classroom. And I had no idea how that got up there because <laughs> I didn't turn that in and that girl wasn't in the classroom that evening. So... My songs came number one and number two, which was shocking. Yeah. And so and so I had to actually go up in front of everybody and I was a bit nervous and everybody started asking me all these questions, which was cool. And of course it's the same questions you you still get, you know, fifteen, twenty years later. They were like, Oh, what what sound was that? Or what what reverb did you use or what compressor? You know, it's the same thing we still ask each other years later. And it was pr it was actually pretty cool talking and just kind of telling everybody how I made it and, you know, what steps I took. And I remember that night after class, my teacher told me I should drop out of school. He said, I'm wasting, I'm not even joking. He told me I'm wasting my time and wasting my money going to school because an education in music will never make me any money. He said, I had the potential to do very well and I had to, you know, go and get my feet wet in the business and, uh, and learn the industry from the streets is what he told me. He said a book won't teach me and school won't teach me. He was actually he was actually a, a failed musician who who came really close and he he definitely saw some potential in me. I wish I wish I could actually thank him. So Kimo Williams, if you're out there, I want to just say thank you. But yeah, I pretty much dropped out of school and I just started working with all kinds of, you know, local talent in Chicago uh, for a while. So you came I mean, you came from Peoria, where basically you had a, a lot of your peers telling you that oh, you're not going to be, I mean, you're, you're wasting your time with this and you should really just focus and get a real job. Was uh, Kimo the, the first person that was kind of a, maybe not a mentor, but someone that was above you that said, hey, this is something that you should actually pursue. Like, this is something you're good at and you should go for it. Kino was, you know, my uncle who, you know, died around that time. He, he actually died the week before I played that song at school, which was crazy. Hmm. He's the one who told me to pursue my dreams no matter how many times I fail. He was the only one in life who told me that at that stage of my life. And so I just, I kind of always held on to that. And I remember when I made my first CD, he, he told me he wanted to buy one and never open it up. <laughs> and he wanted to just save it. And I, I was going to give him one, but he said, no, he actually wanted to pay for it because he wanted me to learn that I can make money doing something that I believe in, mm. you know, that just kind of, you know, still goes heavy with me. Yeah. And with the naysayers, were you, are you able to, were you able to just brush them off and say like, uh, no, I don't think you're, I think you're wrong. Yeah, pretty much. Like I really didn't care what people said and I still really mm. don't care what people say. I just kind of follow my instincts and just do what I think is dope. And, you know, I knew I wasn't great at the time, but I knew I had potential and I knew if I had the right partner or had the right the right manager or something at that time that I could definitely get a step further. Mm -hmm. um, but I mean, that's kind of how it is with everything. Yeah. It's really about the team. It doesn't matter how great somebody is. You you have to have a team around you that can, you know, help you where you're weak and, you, you know, your weaknesses, their strengths and vice versa. You just need a really good team around you in order to win. Yeah, makes sense. So what yeah. happened after you dropped out? Well, after I dropped out, I stayed recording uh, with a bunch of the local acts there, like public announcement and people like that. Uh, but nothing really was happening with it. And I remember I met a guy at a studio in Chicago, and he's like, hey, I have a new girl group, and uh, I'm A&Ring for this record label called Lava Records or something like that. And at that time, Lava Records had a, 
a pop artist. I think it was Lava Records. That a pop artist named Wheela Ford. She had a song called I Want to Be Bad. <clears throat> and um, yeah, she had a song called I Want to Be Bad. And he said, do you have any songs that I could give to this girl group? And so I said, I don't, but I, I can make you something. I can have something for you in a few days. And I remember I called up my old engineer, Eric Nelson, and I told him, hey, man, I have a I have an opportunity to write and produce for this new girl group on Lava Records. I don't even remember what the name of them was. Mm. And I told him, can I come to the studio tonight and can we work on a song together? I wanted to do it just me and you. And there was another guy named Corby I was working with at that time. And, you know, Corby came to write and, you know, we were producing at the time, nothing successfully or anything, but just kind of producing. And, um, and I remember Eric said, if you want, he said, well, for something like this, I don't want an hour rate. He goes, I want publishing and I want to be part of the production. And I, at that time, I didn't know what publishing was. I didn't really know what any of that stuff was. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, sure, sure, that's cool. And he goes, so let's just, he goes, if we're going to do this, let's just partner up. And I'm like, okay. So from, <laughs> I remember I drove down to Bloomington, Illinois. Bloomington was a two-hour drive, two-and-a-half-hour drive from where I lived in Chicago. And I remember I drove down to Bloomington, Illinois, and I remember Eric, Eric and I and Corby stayed up for two or three days with no sleep. It was exhausting and working on, working on a song called Set You Free. And that song, it was the best and worst thing that ever happened to us <laughs> because the song, the music was really good, but the, the writing wasn't really that good. But I remember it had this really cool Latin riff where we were like, wow, this could be sick for Christina Aguilera. And, you know, the A&R loved it. And, you know, the A&R started giving us a bunch of gigs, like remixing songs and things like that. Mm-hmm. You know, Eric and I actually partnered up. We, you know, everyone else that we were working with, we just kind of cut them out because at the end of the day, Eric and I were spending all the time working uh, and creating music and mixing it and just really learning our craft. And everyone else at that time, no offense to anybody, but everyone else that we were working with didn't put in half the time that we put in, like at all. We were doing all the fucking work. And that's just the truth mm-hmm. and eric and i i mean we, we were like if this thing's going to work let's just create a partnership together let's let's come up with a production name and let's be partners and let's just work every week and make tracks and let's see if we can find homes for them and you know we did that we used to work one day a week and that one day because we he was working a job and he, he was actually running his studio and i was waiting tables so we would work on Mondays or Tuesdays or something like that. And I would get up at five in the morning and I would get to his studio by seven thirty or eight o'clock in the morning every Monday. And we would work probably until about four or five o'clock at night. And then I would drive back home to Chicago. So we would work like Insomniacs. And so we came up with the name Insomniacs. <laughs> and so we came up with the name Insomniacs. And and would you believe I did that drive back and forth to that studio? Every week, sometimes two or three times a week for 10 years, no matter what, no matter what the weather was like outside through rainstorms, blizzards, tornadoes, whatever you can imagine. I remember 911 happened or 911 happened and we were working. We were we worked through every possible thing you can imagine because we believed in the dream so much. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's so many stories, but that's just kind of like the rundown on it. And so Eric and I would work every single week and I would start finding artists in town or like in Chicago, artists that, you know, had some kind of name, nothing huge, but I would bring them down. I would pick up these artists. Sometimes these artists are one hour, hour and a half away from me. I would go and pick them up. I would pay for the gas, pay for the food and everything and drive them down to the studio and then drive them back. I was honestly in the car sometimes for like seven or eight hours a day by the time it was said and done to just go and work. Mm -hmm. And nobody ever offered me a penny for gas. Nobody I was working with ever had any money. And so I would work and I would go pick everybody up and I would drive them to the studio to do free music for them. And, you know, we got ripped off so many times, got taken advantage of so many times. But when I look back, I wouldn't change any of it for the world because it got me to where I'm at right now. Yeah. I learned so I learned so many lessons. I remember right around that time, like, like I said, I was still buying every CD that came out every week to listen to sounds, to listen to arrangements, writing, you know, see who's producing all these, all these things. And I remember in the early 2000s, people started putting their email addresses on 
on the CD on the CD notes. Like mm-hmm. I would get managers' emails or I would get A and R's emails, and I started like emailing all these people, pretending I knew them. Mm-hmm. I didn't even know who they were, but I would make all kinds of shit up. Like I would email them, and the subject would say insomniacs, and then I would um. I would actually, the subject would say like responding to insomniac. So I would make all these fake emails and I would be like, uh, I'd be like, Hey man, long time. No talk. Going to be in New York next week. We just worked with 50 cent or Beyonce. I would make all this shit up. And would you believe that I started getting calls and callbacks from all these A&Rs who thought that they really knew me, but our, our music was just good enough to, you know, to take that card just good enough to get us in the room with someone and you know still nothing really nothing really big happened at that time but i was i was starting to get in communication with a lot of really big people at that time who had i don't want to blast anybody or put anybody's name out there but there was a lot of people who who were responsible for a lot of top a-list artists that were out and they were returning my calls they were taking my emails and they honestly got thought that they knew me because some of these emails were like yo long time how is everything and like because people don't want to i learned that everybody kind of believes whatever they you want them to believe you could tell them anything and they'll just kind of believe it nobody was going to do their research on me back then Mm -hmm. and so i kind of i kind of faked my way into it and you know, I started maxing out my credit cards to go to New York, to go to Atlanta, go wherever I need to go to take meetings, even if it's just to have lunch with somebody, because I knew that there was an importance of being seen instead of just being heard. And we didn't have any other way to be seen at that time. You know, emails were just a name with somebody's music. But um, like I said, it, it kind of, you know, it got me to the next chapter in my life. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm glad to, I'm glad to hear someone else is doing that too. <laughs> out here <laughs> pretending, to, pretending to know someone it's like oh yeah that makes sense i, I feel like yeah. i've met a meal before i don't know <laughs> oh of course oh man people like, when i tell them i was part of a team called the insomniacs even if they don't know me they're like oh shit i remember the insomniacs <laughs> you really no i don't think you did i mean Insom- insomniacs came so close to being huge i mean and that's We'll get into that in just a minute, but yeah, I mean, we pretty much, I've pretty much faked my way into the business yeah. and then, you know, the, the music kind of just started speaking for itself and our work ethic kind of started speaking for itself. Yeah. So when, when did the, all that pressure and, and time really start to pay off? Well, while I was doing those fake emails to everybody, I came across, there was a group called 3LW at the time that was, that I was a pretty big fan of. And I came across somebody not their manager at that time but i they had some website and i emailed somebody at the website and they forwarded my email to a lady named tease williams who was managing the group and about a month later a month after i sent that email i got a I got an email from tease in regards to 3lw she's like hey emil i heard that you were looking for uh looking to send some songs to the girls here's my email please send me whatever you you want us to hear and so i sent her so many songs i I pretty much that was at the time to where if you would send like 10 songs somebody's email would be pretty much locked up it'd be out of room so i sent her i sent her a a ton of records and i remember i got an email from her the next day saying i love these two songs i love your music i want you to come out and record these two songs on 3lw i could not believe that i could not believe that i that at that time, this lady responded to me. I mean, she had B2K. Tease Williams was a really big deal. And I could not believe that she actually took the time to email me back to respond to me. It's like, Tease, I love you if you're listening to this. You really changed my life. And she was always straight up with me. You know, she loved something she did. I remember I sent her a song. She said it was terrible. <laughs> she was just always very blunt. And I respect that because I'd rather have somebody be honest to me instead of just beat around the bush and tell me, ah, it's cool. Or yeah, I like it when you really don't, because I wanted to get better. I wanted to know what's strong and what's weak. And we had a few songs that, that were really strong at that time, man. And we ended up, you know, Eric and I flew out to, Tease would only fly one of us out. I do remember that. So remember Eric and I split the cost for an, a plane ticket uh, to come out to LA. And I remember being at the Beverly Garlands Hotel in Universal Studios or in Studio City, somewhere over there. And I remember 3LW, I remember Adrian and her boyfriend coming to 
our hotel room to say hi and, you know, just to meet because they wanted to meet us before the session. And they lived right down the street. So I think they were able to walk to where we were staying at. And I could not believe that I had just met my first real celebrity. And I could not <laughs> believe that, wow, it looks like we're finally getting to the next stage in this chapter. All right, let's take a quick break so we can tell you about something very cool. A few weeks ago at Royalty Exchange, we launched a new tool called Know Your Worth. Know Your Worth is a free app for songwriters, producers, and artists that allows you to get an advance in 90 seconds on your back catalog. We have paid out more than $1 million in advances since we launched this tool. So if you want to check it out, go to worth.royaltyexchange.com. That's worth.royaltyexchange.com. It's completely free. You can find out how much you can get in an advance in a minute and a half. So we recorded with 3LW while we were at the studio with 3LW. Uh, there was a rapper named Chingy who was in the other room. And while it's funny because while we were recording with 3LW, there was in the lobby, there was a huge stereo system. So I went and played our beat CD on full blast. I mean, as loud as loud as you can fucking imagine. I had it so loud that you can hear it all throughout the building. And that caught the attention of the day-to-day manager, uh, a day-to-day manager named Jared Rosenberg, who was managing, um, who was part of the management team for Chingy. And he also had another group called Midwest City, who was signed to Motown. So we all exchanged info. We all became friends. We kind of started working and sending ideas back and forth. And uh, that was my first trip in L.A. And it was a pretty successful trip because I went back you know, to Chicago after recording with 3LW, I went back to waiting tables. I mean, that was rough. And I mean, talk about rough uh, because I felt like I had made it. And now I went back to, you know, everyday life. So it was like hmm. the dream is over. There was a guy I remember pure in Peoria, Illinois, there was a big concert coming up. It was uh, Jojo, Sierra, Ja Rule, all kinds of people. And I had just met a guy named Livio Harris, who was he had a new artist he was developing. Her name was Courtney. And uh, he, he asked me to write over uh, – th- there was a fabulous beat track out or a fabulous song called Breathe or something like that years ago. And I remember he asked me if I could write an R&B song over it for this new girl that he had. He said, give it like a Beyonce, Destiny's Child kind of vibe. And so I did just that. And I sent, he FedExed me the, C- the instrumental because nobody was really emailing or anything still at that time. They were kind of, but most people were still FedExing stuff. And I remember I got the CD in the mail with no case or anything. It just said, like, Courtney, right hit or something like that, <laughs> all in caps. And um, and I wrote that song that night, and I, I, I actually emailed it back to him because I didn't want to send the CD. I wanted him to have it right away. And he told me he loved it, and he wanted this girl to come and record it. And, you know, we did just that. You know, we I was in the studio with Courtney and Livio and all kinds of other people. And, and at that time, Livio, this girl, Courtney was opening up for the concert in Peoria, Illinois. And I, I knew Jojo was going to be at that show. And I, I knew if I could find a way to get to Jojo, that she would want to work with us because the kind of music we were doing at that time was exactly the kind of stuff Jojo was recording. Mm-hmm. And so at the, I remember being at that show, meeting Jojo and her mom and her mom gave me her business card and I must have driven her mom nuts because I emailed her instant messenger every every single day, probably for six or seven months. Jojo was shooting, filming a couple movies and her mother, Diana, was always really, really nice to me, like super nice. And like she didn't have to talk to me, but she did. And she asked me to send some songs. I remember telling Jojo I had a couple of songs I thought would be great for her. And she's, she said, I, I'm really excited to hear him. Jojo was like 14, 13 or 14 years old at the time. And 
I remember she was in Canada sending filming a movie, and her mom asked me to send the music to FedEx it to them in Canada, and they can get it the next morning. Man, I had no money, <laughs> and I went and I went to FedEx and spent like seventy five dollars FedExing a CD to Canada because it was actually more expensive to to FedEx something out of the country. Mm-hmm. And so I FedExed a CD to her the next day. I didn't hear anything back for like three or four days. And I remember her mom emailed me and said, we love the songs. We're going to put you in touch with Vincent Herbert, who was the A&R at the record label. And she's like, Vince loved the songs as well, and he wants you guys to record. I'm like, oh, my God, we're going to record with JoJo. This is insane. And so I got on the phone with Vince, and I told Vince, hey, man, we're going to be in in L.A. in a couple days. Are you going to be around? He said, yeah, yeah, let's let's get together. Let's meet. We weren't going to be in L.A., <laughs> but I used to – we weren't. I'm like – so my partner and I bought a last-minute flight, again, with no money, just maxing out credit cards at the time, uh, to L.A. to go record with uh, – to go meet Vincent Herbert. And so we went to go meet with him, and we were playing songs. He said, I want to record these two songs. We need to record them next week in New York. And we're like, holy shit, we're going to New York. We've never – really been to new york as producers or anything in fact i had never been to new york at that time i was all these other places but i had never been to new york and so we just looked at each other after that meeting we're like wow he looked at me he goes i don't know how you pulled this shit off but great job (laughs) and so we took a bunch of other meetings while we were in town i don't even remember everybody but so many other people so many other meetings while we were in town and we would just find i would find all these artists whether they were signed or unsigned to go work with and we weren't charging anybody anything because my my thoughts at that time were we have to get as many songs out on as many people as we possibly can and we just can't even ask for money we have to have our name kind of be buzzing around and we did that we pretty much did that for like the next few years we would do we worked with so many people during that time and we were meeting so many people and we were getting ripped off by a lot of big people, you mm-hmm. know, but I, it's all kind of part of the story. And, you know, the name Insomniacs pretty much stayed true because I remember being in New York recording with Jojo. We would record from her from 12 to 8 because she couldn't work past 8 o'clock because of her age. And then we would go work this other group called Imagine. And I think they were on Universal Records at that time. We had actually become really good friends with those guys. So Imagine lived about 20 minutes away from where we were recording. And we would go to Imagine's studio in their house from 8 o'clock that night, probably around 9 o'clock that night, because we would get something to eat first, until about 5 or 6 in the morning. And we would record songs with them. So I remember being in New York for the first... The first time ever we did we did three songs with Jojo. She did two songs in two days. And she was at that time the best singer I had ever recorded in my life. There was nobody who there was nobody who could touch her. At 14, she was crushing everybody. And then we would go record with Imagine all night long. And so we did I think we did six or seven songs in three days. And that was full songs. That was a pretty big accomplishment for us. So we learned how to work really fast and how to uh just kind of be prepared for for anything, yeah. man. So, yeah, that's pretty crazy that you could do all that and just actually live true to your name. I don't know how we did it. I really don't. I remember we had a laptop. We were one of the first production teams to start, you know, taking laptops with us and having our setup on a laptop and taking microphones and all kinds of stuff with us wherever we could go. I remember we could never check in a mic stand because at the airport they thought it was – they thought it was like a weapon. Yeah. So they would always take it, they would take it away from us. And so every time we would get to LA or every time we would get to Atlanta or New York, we would have to go to a radio shack or a guitar center and buy and buy a, a new mic stand. So that was always part of the um the expense that we had. Yeah. But it worked, man. It worked. Like we did that for, for several years. So when when did you start like actually charging people and realizing that, hey, we're actually we're worth something and we're making, we're making some, creating some value for these people that we're working with. It was right around the time. I think it was right around the time we did Jojo Mm. because Vincent Herbert wanted to work out the budget with us before we actually went into the studio. So he wanted to get us paid. And when he asked me what our rates were, (laughs) I I said $20,000 per song. And I remember he's like, (laughs) he just whistled. He goes, and we, man, when I tell you, we had never even made $500 a song. He, and I said, I have the boss to say $20,000 a song. He goes, 
he goes, man, since this is our first time working together, can we do two songs for 20,000 and I'll get you guys a bunch of other work? And I'm like, well, let me think about it. I got to talk to a couple people. And so I called him back an hour later. I'm like, yeah, we could do it this time. And, uh, and I was like, holy shit, man, we just made 20 grand. We had, I, that, that's pretty much all I was making a year waiting tables. Yeah. And I remember, I remember getting those checks and they're like, shit, we can make a lot of money doing music. Yeah. What did, I mean, how did, how did you feel when that worked? I mean, it seems like you just threw it out there and expected him to shoot it down. It, I don't, I, I kind of, <laughs> I don't know really how I felt. I was pretty excited. I was like, shit, I, I need to start charging everybody yeah. else. And so, and so I, I started not, you know, I did my, my goal at the time was I was making money doing like little independent projects because the independent acts will always pay you up front to where the majors will pay you on the back end. So we were making, I started making some money doing like independent projects that were self-financed for some pretty decent artists. You know, we caught a few minor singles with them and we made some pretty good money internationally and things like that. But I started just, you know, I, I continued to find artists that were signed. And because if I could do songs on a signed artist and I knew the A&R would like them, then I knew I could get some kind of budget for it. And so that worked for a while. Um, and I remember, I remember I'm trying to think of when, when it all changed. I remember we, we had worked with, we were working with all kinds of people at that time. We, I remember wanting to work with Bobby Valentino when I, when his first single came out I'm like, I need to go to Atlanta and find this guy because I know I know he would love a couple of our tracks. And I did just that. I flew out to Atlanta with my partner and I ended up I, I told myself I'm not going to leave Atlanta until I find him. And so I was with a friend of mine named Chucky, Chucky Charles. He was actually a really great guy. He actually helped introduce us to a lot of people. And he took us to his friend Teddy Bishop's house. And that night while I was at Teddy Bishop's house, a guy came by to listen to music. Uh, the, the, a guy came by for uh, that wanted some music from Teddy for an artist, and he didn't say which artist it was. But you know, I told him I really want to work with Bobby Valentino. He said, "Well, I'm his manager." I'm like, "What?" And uh, I'm like, "I thought so and so managed him." He goes, "No, that other person doesn't. I'm his manager." And so he goes, "Let me hear what you have." And I played him some music, and we were in the studio with Bobby Valentino one week later, <laughs> and we were able to. We I was able to get us a pretty good budget for that, and. You know, the guy's name was Courtney Stewart. Courtney's doing a lot of amazing things right now. He manages Khalid. He's had really, he's having an amazing run. And, you know, he did, he did a lot for us as well, just by believing in us. Because at that time we weren't really big producers, but we were, you know, we were catching a song here and there. We were, you know, we did Jojo, we did 3LW, then we did, we did Boys to Men. We did, um, man, we were doing all kinds of stuff, man. I, this guy... Marcos Hernandez, who had a pretty big hit at the time, we 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 started working with Frankie J and all these other all these other artists who were you know having some pretty good success, and um, I mean they just they took a chance on us, and it it really got us to the again to the next phase of our career, to where in two thousand in two thousand seven or two thousand eight, this is this was a tough one. We did about 60 songs for different major label artists, like signed to either MySpace Records or Interscope Records or Motown. I remember we did 16 songs on this girl group on Motown, and all the acts got dropped, and we didn't get paid for, for any of them. So the year that we thought we were going to blow mm -hmm. up, everything kind of backfired, and music started changing. You know, like R&B was kind of slowly fading out because like lady gaga had just become huge and like pop music and dance music was kind of making a huge it was kind of becoming a thing and so rb really started shifting and my partner and i at that time we felt we were in a rut we felt like wow we're living i'm in chicago he's in bloomington i'm in chicago i'm waiting tables he's engineering clients and um all the work we've done for the last few years isn't really amounting to much and we're, we're broke. We're not doing well financially. I was in so much credit card debt at that time. Like I didn't even know what, how I was going to get out of it. It was just it was like $70,000 or something unbelievable just because I wanted it so bad. Like there was nothing else I wanted. I mean, I had girl, there was a girl I dated like early in my career and she left me. She told me, she told me I had to choose music or choose her. And so I, ch I chose music. I mean, believe it or not, we're friends now. Like 
years later, and I'm happy I chose music because I was able to meet my wife. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, this is a true story for anybody out there who's listening. In 2009, there was a girl, I'm not going to mention any names, a singer internationally who found me because I did a boys to men song that she loved more than anything. It was her one of her favorite songs she had ever heard. It was a song called uh, The Last Time. And that song just she loved it and she wanted me to produce songs for her. She told me she didn't have any money whatsoever and that she uh but and she would love the opportunity to work with me. And I'm like, "Okay, I'm like how much can you pay per song?" And she said, "I ha- I really don't have any money. I can maybe give you $2000." At that, that at that time I'm like, "Okay, cool. I need the money." So I sent her some songs and she said, "I love this one. I want to record this one. I'll pay you $2000 for this one." I'm like, "Okay, cool." I didn't really think much of it, man, like mm-hmm. at all. And so she, I, I just started sending her songs because I was like the businessman that I am. I'm like, well, she has $2,000 to pay me. It's kind of a lot of money for somebody who has no yeah. money. I'm like, I'm like, I wonder if she can find money to buy other songs from me. And she did. Like that $2,000 turned into $10,000. And then she said, I want to fly and record with you guys. I'm like, okay, cool. So I was just selling a bunch of songs that I had laying around to her that she wanted to record. And she had a nice voice. I remember she came by the studio. I picked her up from the airport. She came to the studio and she said, um, I'd really like to get a rapper for this song. And she goes, do you know any rapper that uh, that you could recommend? And I'm like, thinking to myself, I'm like, if you don't have any money, how are you going to get a rapper? Like, how is this making sense? And so... She said, I, I told her, I'm like, a rapper is probably going to be pretty expensive. I, I, I don't know anybody who would do it for under $10,000. And I only said that because I was really trying to blow her off. And the next day she came to the studio with an envelope with $10,000. I'm like, holy shit, this girl just g- gave me $20,000. Like, where is she getting this money from? And it turned out that she came from a very, very wealthy family. I'm not going to mention anything else, but... She she asked me to move to she told me that she wanted me to help her put together an album. She wanted me to help her do radio promo. She wanted me to help her get video videos done. And she wanted me to just kind of help oversee everything. And she said that she wanted to go to L.A. for three months so she could practice and get with the right people and the right team that her grandmother was going to pay mm-hmm. for it. And so. We were on instant message at that time. Like this is, we actually started talking about this after we recorded and she went back, uh, back home and she said, how much would you charge me? And at first I'm like, I was like, well, maybe I'll charge her like $3,000 a month to go to LA or something. I'm like, maybe, maybe she'll do it for like $10,000. It seems like she, $10,000 comes easy Mm -hmm. for her. And so we were just talking and I typed a hundred thousand dollars as a joke, like not even, I'm not even playing. I literally typed it as a joke. And she said, yeah, I was thinking that would be the number. And she said, okay, I'll do oh my it. Gosh. I'm like, oh, my God. So she goes, and I need to, we need to do 10 songs, two videos and all. I, I gave her a budget breakdown of everything for almost half a million dollars. And would you believe that I moved to L.A. the summer of 2009? And, uh, let, let me recap. In the summer of 2009, March or May of 2009, I was $70,000 in debt. By the end of June 2009, I had almost half a million dollars in my bank account. And I hired all of my friends. I took a consulting fee. I did production. I ended up making a lot of money that year, man. And it just changed my life around. It's a true story for anyone who's out there who's completely broke. This shit really can happen. Like, it's not like if you work hard enough and if you network hard enough and if you really do a good job and you treat clients well and you you, you don't fuck anybody over, you can really have you can really find people out there who will pay you the money that you really feel you're worth. And so I moved out here. I was able to set up a studio in a building with a lot of other A-list producers. I, I wasn't actually focusing on producing for a while because I felt my sound was a bit dated and I didn't know how to transition into into the new era of production. So I, you know, I started doing a bunch of other international gigs. I actually got another gig in working with all these artists in Germany who were I was a judge on this German reality TV show and I hit it off with the president and then he was paying an outrageous amount of money. I made probably twice as much as I made off of the girl uh, that paid me to move out here. Um, 
to just work with all these artists that he had. These hor- There was one artist who was good, but most of the artists were just terrible. And within my first year living in L.A., I had made more money than I had seen in my life. And I was able to kind of focus and rebrand. Start. I kind of started writing with a bunch of people who had, were catching pretty big records. I had a friend in the building. His name was Nasri. And Nasri and I, we wrote a lot of records. We met in the late 2000s. We always kept in touch. And when I moved to L.A., we just so happened to be in the same building as each other. And we're like, hey, man, let's write some songs, pick up where we left off. He, was, he had just had success working with New Kids on the Block and Michael Bolton. And so I had a bunch of relationships. He had a bunch of relationships we wrote a few songs together. We catch a number one on JLS. We catch a top 40 hit on Prince Royce. We end up catching some stuff on Pitbull and a bunch of other people together. So we had a pretty good run. And um, I kind of you know, put together a new production team uh, with a few other guys that I thought were really cool. We, had, we all brought something to the table. We called ourselves the cartoons. You know, I disbanded the Insomniacs with my old partner probably in 2011, 2012. He just didn't want to produce anymore. We're still really good friends. No bad blood or anything. We talk all the time. But he just wanted to be a writer and, you know, send ideas over whenever he felt like making them and just focus on being with his family. His kids grew up while we were producing, so he missed spending all the time with his kids. So they pretty much went from babies to teenagers while he just worked away. I mean, he was definitely one of the most dedicated people I ever worked with, the best partner I ever had by far. And, you know, I just, I created a new team with a couple other guys called the Cartoons. Uh, We were all equally just as good as each other, man. We all had strengths and weaknesses, but we started getting in with all kinds of people. We started from Tyle Cruz to Cheryl Lloyd to... Charlie Wilson, Snoop Dogg, Shaggy, T.I., all kinds of people. So our life just kind of, you know, my my career had a slow rise, but then it just kind of took off and we started catching a lot of records. I'm not saying we had a ton of hits, but we caught a lot of good mm-hmm. records with a lot of great artists. The stuff that wasn't really working in the U.S. that we were doing were becoming number one records for us in Korea. We caught a lot of hits and k-pop j-pop i'm actually still catching a lot of hits out there i've got a really good relationship out there and you know i feel like i know more now than i ever did and i'm more knowledgeable on what it takes to make a great song like i don't i don't think there's a lot of people in la who want to write two or three songs a day a lot of writers have publishers that put them in these rooms and these writers get burned out and they're just recycling they're exhausted the producers aren't even finishing the songs so for me i'd rather write 20 or 30 amazing songs a year and spend 50 to 100 hours on that one song to perfect it and make it the best that I can Mm. instead of just making hundreds of songs that don't go anywhere throughout the year. And I'm the kind of producer who also looks on my catalog and my library of songs that I've made throughout my career. And would you believe I have every session I've ever made, probably for the last 15 or 20 Mm. years, I have everything. And uh, I'm super organized with it all. And a lot of times I'll just pull something from like for example as when we did when we formed the cartoons the first song that we caught a hit with was an idea i had started in 2001 and that song became a hit for us in korea because it just so happened to work so it just it goes to show you it's like you could kind of sample yourself like so many people think like oh i don't want to show anybody the song because it's old but people sample old shit all the time like there are no rules you know my some of my biggest hits were songs that were five or six years old those became the biggest hits for me in my career the, even we could take the prince royce song for example we wrote that song nazarene and i wrote that song in 2007 2008 and then we turned that into something in 2012 maybe so you just don't know you just don't know you know you can always update the production you can always you know change the drums or do whatever you want but a great song is a great song and people you know people remake songs all the time so it's like you can pretty much remake your own stuff if you feel it's good enough to you know update and just kind of borrow from yeah that's an amazing story just to the grind for for 10 plus years and then finally getting to kick off is is awesome it is, man. And I'm so thankful and I'm so grateful for every minute of it, you know, the ups and the downs, because the hard times made me appreciate the the good times even more. And, you know, they really keep you grounded and they keep you humble. Like I return every email, every text that I get, um, even if I don't know the people, I'll, I get people sending me music and finding me all the time. And you just you just can't ever really count anybody out. I'm always like, well, what if T's never responded? What if 
what if Jojo's mom never hit me back? It's like, it would have been shattering. So, you know, I've met a lot of great producers and great writers and great collaborators just by being responsive. And, you know, there's a lot of amazing producers out there who don't respond to anybody. You know, we work in an industry to where everybody's ADD and it's all about, you know, all about what's good for them at that moment. But you never know when you're going to meet that person you're supposed to make magic with. You know, I met one of my best friends, when I was when I had just recently gotten married and I was furniture shopping with my wife and you know the lady asked me what I did and I'm like I'm a music producer and she goes oh my god my son sings I'm like oh no here we go a momager and it turned out being that I gave her my info and I followed up I met my best friend so huh. you just you never know and hi, and him and I have caught some really amazing records together so you just you just have to stay humble you have to stay grounded and you just, you just have to treat people. You, to me, you just have to treat people the way you want to be treated. If you want to be heard, you got to listen to other people's ideas. You know, it's like if you have an idea that you're not sure about, uh, you know, show it to somebody. And it's like vice versa. You know, you just, you got to stay grounded. And you can't bash other people's shit because the people that you're bashing might be the next best thing the next month. You just the same people you see on your way up are the same people you see on your way down and vice versa. And you just you definitely want to keep, you know, you want to stay in touch. I do my best to stay in touch with a lot of people, even if it's just to say, hey, how are you? Long time. You know, my, my goal is to stay in touch with 50 people a month. And I know it sounds like a lot, but with text messaging and Instagram and things like that, it's pretty easy because you don't have to be on the phone. You could just say, you know, hit them with something just to kind of stay relevant and in their mind. And, you know, I've gotten a lot of work by just staying in touch yeah. with people. Not it's not about how good it's not about how good you are. It's about who likes you, because I can be OK and you could be OK, but we could be amazing together. So it's just. You know, just stay grounded and treat people the way you want to be treated. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that's the moral of your story, what you just said. Of, It's not, I mean, for you, it's like the music was good. Um, and in some cases, it was great. But it's like, if you just have good music, it's not, and not anywhere to put it, then, uh, you know, what are you going to do? Where you would right. go out and, and open doors when they needed to be open or make a door where one needed to be made. And, you know, I think a lot of people don't really understand that. But it's uh, it's really interesting to hear that story. No, it's cool, man. I've I've had a pretty amazing career. I mean, the fact that I've been able to do music and nothing else for the last 10 years of my life and have an amazing studio, an amazing home and everything just based off of music has really been the biggest accomplishment besides my wife and kids that I've ever had. That's great. Um, yeah. Thanks for listening to Emil's story on this episode. We'll be back next Tuesday with another conversation. Until then, check out all of Emil's social feeds in the show notes. And be sure to subscribe if you want to get that new episode automatically downloaded into your podcast feed. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.